From the National Project on Race and Capitalism, welcome to Season 3 of New Dawn, a podcast focusing on the intersection of race and capitalism, its theories, histories and geographies, with your host, Michael Dawson. Julia Ott is an associate professor in the history of capitalism at the New School and founding co-director of the Robert L. Hellbroner Center for Capitalism Studies at the New School for Social Research. A scholar, teacher, editor, and public intellectual, she aims to expand and advance studies of the histories of capitalism. She is an editor of Public Seminar, a member of Defense Editorial Board, and co-editor of the book series Studies in the History of U.S. Capitalism, published by the Columbia University Press. Ott has written the book When Wall Street Met Main Street, The Quest for an Investor's Democracy, published in 2011. You will find her forthcoming article, Tax Preference as White Privilege, Historical Perspective on the Racial Wealth Gap, in the journal Capitalism History this summer. It's my pleasure to introduce today's guest, Julia Ott. I've been reading your paper on the capital gains tax, Tax Preferences as White Privilege, Historical Perspectives on the Racial Wealth Gap. And there are connections between white supremacy and tax policy that I did not suspect, despite the fact that I've been working on race and political economy for quite a while now. This is an extraordinarily interesting policy area. Can you say a little bit more about the sort of general overview on how the fight to make capital gains tax beneficial to the wealthy was tied explicitly to the attempt to preserve white supremacy in the Jim Crow South? Absolutely, absolutely. And I would say not just the Jim Crow South, but, you know, white supremacy and racial apartheid really across the entire country because federal tax policy is national policy. So before I explain that in a little bit more detail, let me just first explain what the capital gains tax preference is in case people have not read the paper or if they're debating whether it's (laughs) worth reading the paper. It is. Uh, No, thank you. So ever since 1921, which is very shortly after the United States begins or introduces income tax, period, the U.S. tax code has taxed income from gains on investments that people make at a lower rate than they tax folks' salary and wage income. All right. So if you have a stock and you bought it for $100 and you sell it tomorrow for $105, you have a $5 gain. And that income would be reported separately on your tax return and charged a tax rate that would be less than the $5 that you might make in, in wages and salaries on the same day. So this has always been the case ever since 1921. You know, the degree to which these two things differ changes over time. And then, you know, because income tax for wages and salaries is progressive, you know, the higher you go, the more the more wage and salary income you have, the richer you are in that sense, you know, you're going to be paying a higher and higher tax rate on your marginal income. As you move up, you know, the tax brackets. So then, you know, by the time you get to, you know, the highest earned and salary, wage and salary, sorry, incomes that are be, you know, being taxed the most, the gap between those high salaries and the investment gains that they make, right? The, the difference between those two different tax rates can be really quite large. And what this turns out to the effect of this, just to illustrate it by way of an example folks might remember, when uh, Mitt Romney was running for president, there was a lot of 
a brouhaha over why his tax rate was so low. Warren Buffett famously lamented the fact that he paid a lower percentage in taxes than his secretary. And this is all because people like that receive so much investment income that they really get to enjoy this privileged or preferential rate for capital gains. So this has been the case, actually, as I say, ever since 1921. So, you know, we think about the mid-century as being this kind of, you know, tax progressivity, very high rates, and yeah, very high rates on on earned and salary income. Uh, But there's always this kind of persistent undermining of progressivity, because if you have a lot of investment gains, and again, rich people have a lot of investment gains, white people, those folks are overwhelmingly white and always have been, the, you're going to enjoy it more. And, you know, and that is something that by cutting against progressivity, tax progressivity, um, you know, has a role in, in, in wealth inequality, which we know very much is, is racialized. So in that sense, it relates to sort of white supremacy as a, a, a feature of the tax code um, that prefer, preferences a group of people, rich people who are almost entirely white, it privileges them way out of proportion to their their demographic numbers, right? Um, so they receive white households receive ninety four percent of capital gains in the in the last year we looked at, which was two thousand and sixteen. Okay, so so in that sense, and this is kind of this sort of thing has always been the case, right? That going back to nineteen twenty one, and in fact, you know, back earlier in time, you would have had this even probably being a more white population that's enjoying this thing. So it has that kind of you know practical sort of result of you know allowing wealthy white households who are receiving all of this income, investment income, allowing them to keep it away from the tax man and keep it to themselves, continue to accumulate that wealth in a way that folks who are just earning salaries and wanting to save those salaries and wanting to buy a home and, and you know start a business and on an after-tax basis, they're getting more taxes because it's wage and salary income. They're getting more taxes taken out before they can do any of those wealth-building exercises. So in that sense, you know, not just in the Jim Crow period, but certainly today, too, it is, you know, I would say like a racist feature of our tax policy. Right now, historically, this is what was surprising to me and what the paper was really all about is that, you know, this didn't just happen. It's not just a sort of, well, you know. Looking over time, it's unfortunate African-Americans, you know, as a legacy of slavery and a legacy of Jim Crow, they were earning less money. And and so, you know, they've just it just so happens that they didn't have the same opportunity to enjoy this tax privilege. No, 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 no. What I actually found was the most diehard, the most stalwart Southern segregationists in Congress in, you know, and they, they sit in Congress from the 1930s through the 1960s. They're in control of the Senate Finance Committee. And this is a very intentional feature of the tax code that they protect and they widen. They, they make it bigger, the difference between these two forms of income. And they're doing it with a really explicit intention of protecting and preserving white wealth when confronted with 
you know, New Deal and other subsequent liberal programs, you know, and attempts at reform, tax reform to abolish this kind of thing. They're working very, very hard to preserve it and expand it as a counterweight or as an answer to or as undermining, you know, everything around mid-century liberalism and its effects um, in terms of, yes, doing some mild income redistribution to the working and middle classes, doing some, you know, major redistribution that promotes wealth building among the white middle classes, you know, and the elaboration of a social safety net and public education and all of this kind of stuff. All of that stuff, of course, has its own racial dynamic. And it's not to say that those features of modern liberalism were, you know, inclusive and integrated because they weren't. But these folks my guys that I'm talking about, these strict segregationists, they recognized the fact that they were those liberal policies and progressive taxation were going to threaten the rule of white wealth in the South. And, you know, even if the New Deal and other, you know, moments of mid-century modern liberalism were making all kinds of racial covenants and concessions you know, to modern liberalism that privileged whites over blacks. Nonetheless, even, you know, the very limited amount of, you know, economic and racial challenge contained within those programs or threatened by those programs in the view of these, I call them the irreconcilables, these really strident white supremacists who never made peace with the New Deal, they see these things as incredibly threatening. And so beginning in the 1930s, so they say, we can't just say segregation forever. We can't just have massive resistance. And these are the guys who say these things and do these things. But they also say, we're going we're gonna to keep tight control of the Senate Finance Committee, and we're going to make sure that um, tax policy you know, is always is always, uh, this capital gains tax policy is always kind of undermining and is holding the ground for white wealth. So one of the seminal moments in the sort of consolidation of this mindset among the segregation that's concentrated in the Senate Finance Committee and in Congress more generally was the United Textile Workers Strike of 1934. Even though that strike wasn't a Successful. Can you tell me how that strike affected how they thought about the world? Yeah. And I think it's a good illustration of kind of like on the ground, what it looks like to them and, and sort of a good illustration of like what the world looks like in 1934 when we don't know, we don't know what, you know, the emerging, you know, New Deal what emerging New Deal policies are going to do, how they're going to, you know, how they how they may affect race or, or what they're going to have to say about race in the United States. So in 34, you have this, you know, massive sextile strike, you know, sort of all up and down the East Coast. And although labor unions at the time are, are very often segregated and even, you know, New Deal labor policy does not you know, specify or require integration of labor unions for, you know, recognition um, under federal labor law. The fact of the matter is on the ground, you know, labor unions are conducting, in some cases, they are conducting interracial 
organizing. So, you know, even though interracial organizing kind of cuts against the grain in many ways, kind of labor culture, and, um, you know, it's, it's not something that the, the New Deal labor policy goes after, segregated unions, there are folks who are doing it. There are unions that are doing it. And, and even when all white unions are doing it, it is undermining you know, and this particular this particular strike in 1934 fails, but it is undermining the whole idea that the quote unquote New South, the whole political economy that the New South is built upon. And these guys that I'm talking to, Congress, these I call them the irreconcilables, these these stalwart segregationists, white supremacists who control the Senate Finance Committee basically for 30 years. So they don't like, you know, they certainly don't like interracial organizing, but they don't like all white organizing either because demands for union recognition and collective bargaining, you know, they absolutely threaten the low wage labor regime that Southern, you know, the economy of the New South is predicated on. And the big constituencies for these guys, you know, are the large wealthy white landowners and sort of the new south industrialists. So, you know, you you can even have, you know, interracial union organizing is sort of an obvious threat to them, but even all white, you know, unionized workforce is a threat to them. And this this particular strike in 1934 is also really an industry strike that happens all the way down the eastern seaboard at textile mills, you know, all the way from Maine down to Alabama. So this is really scary. So one of the really interesting and very explicit aspects of the New South industrialists and how they were trying to sell themselves to investors is that they not only talked about the lack of Negro political power, but they also talked about we don't have Eastern and Southern European immigrants. We don't have anarchists. We don't have Jewish and Catholic. Yeah. We have Anglo-Saxon white people who know how to behave. Yeah, they go to the, they read the Bible, they don't drink, you know, it's like, yeah, right. But, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, it was actually really interesting to think about this in terms of the very, you know, my, I'm, I'm Polish Catholic on my mother's side and, and, and actually on my father's side, I'm German Catholic. And it was like a, that was even a bit of a scandal back in the day, you know, but you know, the provisional whiteness of those kinds of groups and how that provisional white risk was also dangerous. I mean, the fact that, the Southern and Eastern European Jews and Catholics were going into the CIO and going into and, and acting um, in some of the interracial unionization of that day. We're, we're skipping now, you know, we're in the, the kind of later part of the 30s now. Yes, it was really interesting to me to see how the provisional whiteness of the groups that you identified, Michael, how that really plays into the story, how they're perceived, their willingness to enter into interracial unions, to even organize interracial unions, you know, just how sort of dangerous and marginal these people are, you know, and we're not far away from the 1920s Ku Klux Klan. And, and obviously, there is an active Klan still in the South and in the Midwest and et cetera, who hold these groups in contempt as well. So one of the other markers of the late 1930s was what you describe as a conservative movement manifesto. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a bit about that and how you link it both to the neoliberal turn and financialization? Conceptions, particularly the former, which many historians in the U.S. are skeptical, even if I'm not. 
you're not. I'm not either. So this is good. <laughs> we'll, <laughs> we'll just agree that there's nothing to be spent out. We can talk about that more. But to your point about the conservative manifesto. So, you know, what happens is that, you know, these guys, my the guys on the Senate Finance Committee, my irreconcilables, as I call them, they are looking at, you know, it's 36, it's 37. Um, Roosevelt has returned to office, you know, in a huge landslide victory that's really, you know, got the interracial unions of the CIO and black voters in the North and, and you know, white ethnics behind him. It's a really dangerous political turn of events in the eyes of not only now my Southern segregationists, but also Democrats, other, I mean, these, I should say, these uh, irreconcilables are Democrats. Also other Democrats, Democrats in the North, Democrats in New York City, who, you know, never liked FDR in the first place either, even though, you know, he was the candidate in 32. They, they never liked that. And these groups kind of already knew each other. But by 36, 37, it's like, OK, it's not just that we don't like Roosevelt. It's that Roosevelt has built this huge constituency behind him. And he's got, you know, very anti-finance, pro-heavy progressive taxation, including taxation on undistributed profits and raising the capital gains tax. He's got racial liberals in his cabinet. He's got Eleanor, you know, who's a racial liberal. This is looking really dangerous to both of these groups on either side of the Mason-Dixon line. Then after the 36-37 victory, FDR decides that he would like to get rid of these guys. He would like to get rid of these Southern irreconcilables. And he tries to, he actually goes on the midterm campaign trail and campaigns against them. Well, this backfires. And when they return to Congress, now having made friends with people on Wall Street, having now made some friends in the Republican Party as well, because there's certainly a whole group of industrialists like from Michigan and actually from Rhode Island, textile industrialists who have kind of representatives in Congress or who themselves sit in Congress. So these guys have really begun to develop some relationships. And when they come back to when they're not purged, when they successfully all win reelection, they go on on the offensive and they manage to, you know, whatever small increases in capital gains taxation, tax rates that the Roosevelt administration was able to achieve, the tax on undistributed corporate profits that Roosevelt had been able to achieve, they are able to really nail down the Senate Finance Committee and get rid of all of that stuff, bring back the capital gains preference, get rid of corporate undistributed profit tax, et cetera. Now, the conservative manifest so then is their attempt to really rouse other folks in Congress and, and say, you know, this is a new bipartisan moment where we're going to stand up to FDR. There are those of us in both parties. And the first thing we need to, to do is we need to really lay out some, some basic principles. And um, it was very interesting finding this document because the first thing they identify actually is capital gains taxation. And then like the second thing they identify is, you know, the kinds of coded states' rights, et cetera, local control, these kinds of things that you would expect from, you know, Jim Crow segregationists. So, you know, they're just side by side 
by for with each other. They just are, you know, to them fully integrated parts of the same package. Um, you can't have one with uh, without the other. And, you know, this this conservative manifesto does not rouse Congress in such a way that, um, you know, the Democratic Party abandons the New Deal or anything like that. But between the manifesto, the interests that it captures um, among the kind of the, of the public and the way in which, yeah, they're able to, to take on and ensconce themselves in the Senate Finance Committee, this kind of marks an important point um, in a lot of ways in the history of the New Deal of saying, you know, there's a bunch of us. We stand for something. It's the protection of white wealth, and you know this. This certainly, at least on this taxation front, like you're, it's not going to go any further. And then you know, again, allies in the financial and business industry. Uh, you know, they publish this, they circulate it. You know, they rally behind it, um, et cetera, et cetera. How is this linked to the ending of the New Deal, and how did the thirty-eight elections play into this? Yeah. So the thirty-eight. I mean, you know, the thirty-eight elections then. All right. So they don't, Roosevelt does not try to, to purge these guys until 38. So okay. let me go back. So with the conservative manifesto, then this is set out when Roosevelt is like coming off of his big 36, 37 victory. And the segregationists who are on the Senate Finance Committee, these irreconcilables, their allies in Congress who are industrialists, their allies on Wall Street, you know, all of them kind of come together after this big victory to sort of say, all right, this isn't our Democratic Party anymore. And we would like to work with some of these industrialists, you know, and their representatives in Congress across the aisle. So the conservative manifesto is like a meeting point for, you know, where we're going to really lay out our principles and hope that we can capture from the two parties, create this coalition. It doesn't exactly work. I mean, it definitely, you know, that doesn't happen in Congress right away. It happens over time. It's sort of the first the first instance where that is envisioned and, and put out there as a political possible congressional political uh, strategy, but it's it's heavily circulated, you know, among a growing group of businessmen and, you know, wealthy folks within the Democratic and Republican Party and attracts a lot of interest. Now, the president certainly reads this and reads this moment of like, as I got to get rid of these guys. Okay. They have come out. They have come out programmatically. They're making themselves very visible. These, and they have they have managed to put a break on my tax agenda at this point. So I've got to get rid of them. And in the 38 midterms, he Roosevelt actually goes on the campaign trail and, you know, speaks on behalf down in the South, doing things like calling the South a feudal economic system, calling the South a fascist society, and marking some of these irreconcilables. Uh, the one that he really goes after is Walter, a guy named Walter George from um, from Georgia, a man who burned his papers after or his uh, his <laughs> his children or something did. So a man whose papers are unavailable to us, but FDR recognizes these guys as really standing in his way. Unfortunately, Roosevelt, that kind of language alienates Southern voters. And these irreconcilables go back to Congress. And they go back feeling sort of stronger than ever because the president explicitly tried to sort of campaign against them and take them out and they survive. At that point, it's really when they're able to ensconce themselves 
in the Senate Finance Committee then for like the next 30 years. And when they come back in 38, they widen the capital gains preference, you know, something that had the tax rate on capital gains had been inching up a little bit. Roosevelt wanted to see it raised more. They sl- they managed to slash it. They ran- managed to remove New Deal taxation on undistributed corporate profits. And so this is a really key victory for them. Now, what's the relationship here, you asked, between the conservative manifesto and financialization and what was the other thing? Neoliberalism. (laughs) What's the relationship? Well, the relationship here is it's kind of the first time that you're going to see political actors like this, you know, sort of important congressional political failures. uh, I'm sorry, important congressional political figures, you know, again, in this case, it's the Senate Finance Committee. What they're saying is that investors and financial markets, by identifying the capital gains tax as something that punishes investors, as something that impedes the flow of finance, um, as something that's like not just not good for finance. Thinking of investors' investment in financial markets as being the most important things in an economy, the thing that the things that econ and functions that economic policy really has to, you know, kind of protect uh, and nourish, right? Like this is a key moment, uh, a key origin moment in thought. In, in, in political economic thinking, um, you know, that will really become hegemonic, right? Like after the 1970s. So my argument here is not like that these guys were neoliberals, like that would be an anachronistic. They understood themselves as conservatives. They understood themselves as racial conservatives and economic conservatives, you know, all of it. But they're talking in a very different way now. They're talking in a very different way about the way in which capitalism works and the way in which the federal government sort of should facilitate the accumulation of private capital, the free flow and allocation of private capital as being its sort of foremost responsibility, the only kind of just and effective and democratic form of economic policy. You know, and obviously, if we think about this at the historical moment, this is a set of ideas that's sort of developing against an emerging, you know, kind of Keynesian, you know, fiscal and monetary state, you know, again, very early on. So, you know, the point being that we can see the origins of ideas that sort of have informed neoliberalism in recent decades in this much earlier moment at the intersection of the backlash to modern liberalism and the backlash to the New Deal and the backlash to Keynesianism and, you know, intersecting with, you know, the last, well, I shouldn't even say last, but intersecting with evolving tools uh, of Jim Crow. Right. And so what I would argue is that this capital gains tax preference, right, is it's like it's it's in a it's a new tool that's being developed to preserve the political rule and the, you know, political resources of white wealth at that particular historical moment. It continues to do that for decades onwards, including to the present day. But it also becomes the language around it, the discourse around it, again, about the importance of investors, investment, financial markets, 
tax privileges for those things, light regulation for all of those things, right? All of that kind of stuff um, emerges at the same moment. There are some antecedents in the 1920s and teens that I talk about in my previous book, um, but this is really kind of, I think, um, uh, an important wellspring um, that connects to you know the world that we've been living in since at least the 1980s. Of course, you know, World War II coming into play. But after World War II, the New York Stock Exchange becomes a major actor. Can you explain how they end up in lying and in some ways being the bag men for, yeah. the, for your people? Yeah, or, or you can think about it the other way around, right? Who's carrying the bag, right? Right. <laughs> so, um, it's, it's interesting. Well, I'll just I'll begin answering this by telling you about a little, be, be kind of a nerd here and, and tell you a little archival story. When I was finishing my last book, and I was kind of trying to do this kind of quick. My, my last book really ends with the crash of uh, 1929. But in the epilogue, I needed to do kind of a, a run up, you know, how does this shed light on the rest of <laughs> the last century? And I was in the stock exchange and I was doing archival um, work in the collection of a mid-century president of the stock exchange named Keith Funston. And I couldn't understand why there were all of these letters um, to Harry Bird who, by the way, coined the term massive resistance. Why are there all these, and why are they gushing over him and gushing over his son and saying that he's like the most faithful ally that he have they ever had? And I knew he was on the Senate Finance Committee, but, you know, I, I just... It didn't make sense to me. I was like, why aren't they more like, why don't they like, like, why isn't Taft their guy? Like, why isn't Goldwater their guy? You know what I mean? Like, that's what I kind of thought was going to happen. And then it turned out, you know, as I explored this now, you know, I kind of put that away and, and couldn't quite figure it out at the time. And then I later came back to it. You know, I realized that, you know, he had been this really key figure all the way back into the 1930s. So anyway, what was your question again? <laughs> what was so, the question? so just, part of it was that you know the nineteen the late nineteen thirties run into World War Two, right? So, but one of the, one of the aspects of your paper that I found fascinating was the emergence after World War Two. The New York Stock Exchange is a major player, a major ally of the Southern Irreconcilables, as you call them. Right. Okay. So my story is sort of like, how did I realize that that, that they were even friends and right. actually long-term friends? Because a letter's written when, you know, Bird is like retiring from Congress because he has a brain tumor and he dies shortly thereafter. And then there's this, you know, writing about, you know, missing him and, you know, lamenting and condolences to his son who becomes center, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I put that away for the moment and, you know, came back to it many years later and realized that these relationships go back to the 1930s. Uh, Bird's relationship to the capital gains preference goes back to the 1930s and then did more archival research to figure out that their relationships, the, the irreconcilables and the New York Stock Exchange leaders, their relationship went back to the 1930s. Um, and I first see it you know, when Roosevelt goes on the attack and goes on the campaign trail, you see stock exchange figures going down there and saying, you know, talking to crowds and uh, the, and supporting the irreconcilables for re-election. And then eventually what I learned by circuitous research paths, it turns out that, you know, yeah, they, they have these relationships dating from the 1930s. But in World War One, um, the president of the stock exchange, who's a very smart well-positioned figure. His name is Emil Schramm. He had been in charge of no, nothing less than the Reconstruction Finance Corporation in the 1930s. And this is basically like the big national federal bank 
public agency that saves capitalism in the 1930s by lending money to like everybody and anybody, you know, that, that, uh, I mean, not segregationist ways as, as all new deal programs do, um, you know, but they're running around. It's, it's like I said, it's the biggest government program. It's the biggest financial institution in the country for some time. In World War One, there are kind of additional uh, federal financing agencies, namely the Defense Plant Corporation, that is either lending money to people or, in some cases, just you know uh, organizing resources so that the federal government builds plant and builds infrastructure and then even continues to own it, maybe leases it to private agencies. The fact of the matter is, in both the Great Depression and World War II, private capital markets are just not up to the task, right? They're just not up to the task of recovery. They're not up to the task of employment. They're not up to the task of, you know, uh, military armament. So Emil Schramm is in charge of these things, right? This is a guy who knows like how to, how to, how to allocate the money, you know, to, to get markets moving. And in 1941, I believe it is, he gets an offer from the New York Stock Exchange for $50,000 salary. And when I saw this like in newspapers and stuff, I was like, why is everybody so like big and hot to comment on the size of his salary? That It turns out that the CIO and Roosevelt, or the CIO backs Roosevelt and like kind of writes the bill for the Roosevelt administration, trying to limit wartime salaries to $25,000. So the stock exchange is like, you know, whatever, like, look at what we're going to do. And they lure Emil Schramm away from the RFC and the DPC. And he becomes the president of the New York Stock Exchange. At this point, and, and he, as he recalls in his oral history, he knows everybody. Everybody in Congress has been coming to him asking him for money, you know, for like a decade now at this point, right? Nearly a decade. Because the RFC even starts under Hoover, right? So it's been nearly a decade. And, he, you know, everybody owes him favors. So he befriends the irreconcilables. And again, the, exchange, the stock exchange and the irreconcilables had, had already had a bit of a relationship. But he begins, he befriends the irreconcilables and he becomes you know, their go-to guy when they need funding, when they need campaign funds or whatever kind of money. And he goes, he relates it. He'd go to Washington. People would, he'd, he'd find out who needed what. And then he'd come back and he'd literally go down to the floor of the stock exchange and walk around, go from post to post. And he says in his, his memoir, he says, you know, I, I knew what people had. I knew people's politics. I knew who could afford to contribute and what they could afford to tri- contribute and what they would contribute to. So he just walks around and he collects cash and he takes it back down to Washington. And so there's, my, in my sense, my, uh, my answer for why Walter George burned his papers is because I think Walter George, and it's indicated in the oral history, like that he was one of the main recipients, again, chair of the Senate Finance Committee, uh, main recipients of this graft. Um, and yeah, that's what, you know, we talk a lot about one party rule and we talk a lot about, you know, the all white primary and this, that, and the other that keeps these Southern segregationists so powerful. You know, they get into Congress, they never leave seniority rules, plum uh, committee appointments, et cetera, et cetera. Well, there's also, you know, they, the CIO has started PACs. Um, You know, they're, they're doing Operation Dixie. They're sending people South and they're trying to change things and you can't fight it without money. I mean, even all of the legal strategies of Jim Crow, 
you know, they perceive are not going to be enough to keep this system in place. So, you know, the stock exchange goes from an interesting sort of ideological partner and supporter, you know, and somebody behind the scenes who can distribute stuff for you, influence people, uh, speak to a large community, uh, investing public on your behalf, you know, inside players in the Democratic Party, et cetera, et cetera. It goes from that, which it had been in the 1930s, to, you know, a source of, of, of corrupt graft in the 1940s and 50s, and I think really through the 60s, from what I can really tell. I don't think it stops when Emil Schramm leaves office. So they play this really important role in keeping these guys in Congress. And again, these are the guys who are writing the tax code, and they're the guys who are telling people, you know, we massive resistance. We will not let those kids, you know, into the schools, black kids into the schools. We will not integrate colleges. You know, these are the guys who are also a man like um, uh, Harry Bird, you know, the man, the men at the forefront of those kinds of strategies. And I think it's interesting to think about like whether they, they would have, they would have, I mean, maybe I'm naive, but you know, whether they would have been able to do that and do that for so long, you know, if, if they had not been taking that money. To end this part of our discussion, you talk about the tax reforms of the 1950s and the 1960s. How did they reinforce racial economic inequality as well? So after World War II, you know, during World War II, the the base, the tax base had broadened in the United States, which means that a lot more uh, American households, you know, it becomes a majority, a thing that the majority of Americans have to pay. And actually tax rates remain quite high. But the Irreconcilables on the Senate Finance Committee, they're always, always, always able to defend this capital gains preference. And they even actually manage to widen it, to lower capital gains taxes even further. The argument being, again, developed in, in concert with the New York Stock Exchange, well, you know, you can't just let, you know, taxing, borrowing, and public funds do all of this economic mobilization. Like you also have to encourage private investors and private financial markets. Otherwise, all this world wartime mobilization is going to like kill capitalism, free enterprise, democracy, etc. So they, you know, again, continue to sort of hold the ground for for white wealth all through World War II and really then for the entire post-war period. The left is really not, they continue to recognize the fact, the left in its kind of varied forms, continue to recognize that this is something that benefits wealth, wealthy people disproportionately, and at times even with a, a, a recognition of its, its obvious racial implications. So when you get tax reform in the mid-century, what you get is a lowering of that earned that you know this is like with with Kennedy and Johnson in 64, you get the lowering of high of the, of tax rates on high um, earned and salary income. And you get the acceleration of de, what they call the acceleration of depreciation schedules, which means that businesses can write off their assets faster, right? And if, you, if you're writing off a bigger number every year, it actually boosts your profits, right? So, so there is like these kind of tax reforms that are desired by certain, you know, kind of elite segments or wealthy segments in society and power, economically powerful segments in society. But this capital gains tax thing, like it never goes away. And so, yes, so folks who are investors who are 
white then, now, they continue to retain more of their income from investments. And that facilitates their accumulation of you know, wealth over time. Then you have, and I don't get into this in the paper very much, you know, part of capital gains policy too is that what it, it intersects with inheritance policy, which is also very important to these figures, right? So they're always working to make sure that the tax burden, like not only do you keep more of your investment income, but then, you know, when you die, you leave as much of that, you know, you save as much as that from the tax man too, right? So at the same time that like the middle classes and the working classes are benefiting from, you know, uh, housing policy, they're benefiting from, you know, progressive income taxation for earned incomes and salary incomes. There's all of this stuff that the tax code is doing for rich white people. And the important thing here, I think, to to recognize even in the mid-century moment is that whereas in Europe, Wealth inequality continues to decline after World War II. Okay, right? So the wealthiest people in society, um, their share is getting less and less in the 50s and 60s and 70s um, in Europe. In the United States, like that plateaus after World War II. Okay, so even though you know, if you think about the the U-shaped curve of Peketty and, and Sayas for, for wages and salaries, even though, you know, the share of the top 1% or the top 10% of income is lower in the mid-century than it is today, where it's as high as it's ever been, you can't, you don't see that same U-shaped curve with respect to wealth. So what the Senate Finance Committee, the irreconcilables on the Senate are, are able to do, able to preserve in, the, in this capital gains preference, and then again, inheritance tax also plays a role in here too, is they are able to, even if they can't, um, even if they can't completely roll back the effect on income that liberalism has in the United States and the income distribution, they do hold the line on wealth. And then, of course, you know, when you get to the 1970s, this stuff is all hardwired and baked in. Uh, and when you lose other things, you lose a labor movement, you lose, you know, you lose public education, you lose, you know, all kinds of things that had worked to, um, wor- you know, to improve income equality for Americans. When you lose all of that after the 1970s, well, then this stuff, the capital gains tax preference, the inheritance tax uh, issues, all of this stuff then um, can just come, you you know, uh, you know, roaring into play um, in terms of driving more, more and accelerating upward redistribution of both income and wealth now. And that's what we see after the 1970s. So that's uh, relatively depressing. Yeah. No, it's not, because we can do something about it, Michael. (laughs) That's true. We're working on it. So let me end with stepping back and thinking about the discipline you work in a bit. I mean, your work... demonstrates potential exciting synergies between those that see themselves working within a racial capitalism framework or racing capitalism framework on one hand and those who see themselves as part of histories of, of the histories of capitalism movement. How do you see this playing out in your own work and more generally and where is your work taking you next? Yes. So, you know, I'll just, I'm a historian, so I can't, I can't help but speak in terms of narrative. And, you know, I I started the story a little bit earlier to say when I was talking about finding that, you know, 
by this 1960s, the New York Stock Exchange was identifying, you know, this guy who was like the person who coined the term massive resistance as their sort of biggest ally and friend in Congress and feeling like, wait, that should be Robert Taft or that should be Barry Goldwater. Like, why is it Rob? Why is it Harry Byrd? So, you know, at that point in time, and I was kind of finishing my first book, there there had begun to be, you know, quite a lot of criticism about this emerging field of history of capitalism and whether it was really doing enough with a racial analytic and critical race theory about whether it was really doing enough to give credit to, you know, early theory, the, earlier theorists of race and capitalism. And, you know, as I was finishing the next, th- that book, and I was having these experiences in the archive where I'm seeing William Byrd and, uh, you know, he's this infamous, you know, leader of massive resistance. And I'm thinking to myself, like, I'm going to really have to take this pretty seriously if I really want to continue to explore this in the post-war moment. And it's, you know, to just to say briefly, like, you know, the political configurations and alliances and stuff, things of that nature, you know, are different in the 20s and the teens, which is, you know, the book I wrote before. So something was really changing here. And also around the same time, I wrote this essay about race and slavery and capitalism. And this was a lecture that I had developed when we started the Heilbrunner Center for Capitalism Studies here at the New School. And it was, you know, very eye-opening and very excited to the students and to the group of faculty who were participating in that initiative, including, you know, folks that I would never think, you know, who, who I would like yourself, Michael, they're like, you're, you know, you're, <laughs> they're my intellectual heroes. I never thought that Nancy Frazier or Wolfgang Strike would, would be, Hey, I don't, I didn't really know about that. I didn't really think about that uh, as maybe as much as I should. So I gave this, you know, sl- like, and it was all just based upon the work of, you know, folks who, who researched that subject. I'm not myself a historian of slavery. And so I realized though, in writing it, I mean, I think there was some utility for me in writing it as a review of other people's work to say, okay, well, obviously the next step here is to really be thinking about how capitalism and racism are always mutually constituted. And the work of the historian is to really empirically pluck that out, to hold folks, to hold policies, to hold institutions responsible, right? And not just kind of think of it or assume it, you know, as a, you know, unintended byproduct or, you know, or whatever it might be, um, that the analytic, what really needed to be central and, and the, and the subject really needed to be central too in this field. So, you know, a lot of, at that particular moment, I think a, a lot of that I did the, as I said, I did the slavery lecture and, and I wanted to see then like, well, where can we go next with this? If, where, if we go from, you know, if we're making this very strong case now as a group about the origins of capitalism in racialized chattel slavery, you know, then we need to really start to think about our own present day and, you know, all of the time that has passed between those points in time. And, and again, put it at the front, put, put race and racism at the forefront of uh, the way we think about things and, and what we study, what we think about. So, you know, this article, I think, you know, is an output of that kind of commitment that I developed as I finished up my last book and started the Heilbronner Center and was teaching there. And uh, in terms of where I'm going next, I'm, I'm looking at a phenomenon which is 
involved in this capital gains story, although kind of quietly and peripherally in this particular article, which is venture capital. So venture capital, you know, we kind of know it today as this sector of the financial market that makes a lot of money and disrupts a lot of things and is responsible for a lot of innovation and supporting a lot of innovation. But what I found was that that concept of venture capital, like that there is this sector or segment of the financial industry or the financial particular type of investor who works with innovators and works with entrepreneurs in a particular stage of development and you know they take a lot of risk and they get a lot of reward and that's you know totally fair and it's totally essential for capitalism um it long 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 predates the actual emergence of a venture capital industry. It long predates anybody actually identifying themselves or their firm as being venture capital. So that's really quite interesting to me. And, and it was something that's analogous to what happened in my first book, which was about the concept of the small investor or the average investor or sort of every man as a finan- an investor in the financial markets. So it turns out this idea that venture capitalists exist, you know, this function of venture capital exists, they're supremely important. It all originates in the very same stories that we've been talking about today. Um, And tax policy is just one piece of it. Um, You know, what you find in the 1930s and 40s um, is this real anxiety about whether American capitalism can stand on its own two legs. Of course, American capitalism never did stand on its own two legs. I mean, government encouragement, government subsidy, um, expropriation, all of these kinds of things are, you know, absolutely essential and continue to be so. Um, But in the 1930s and 1940s, there's this real concern that um, that the government, and especially in financing, and this goes back to our, our conversation about the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, the Defense Planet Corporation, and in the area of tax policy, because it's you know, it, the taxing of, of wealth, the taxing of returns, the taxing of inheritance, you know, the idea that the government, either by actively playing a role in, as kind of, fi- of as financier and the largest financial institution in the country, and by the way in which the tax code, you know, may affect investment decisions and investors, that this really may be, as I said, uh, compromising American capitalism. And when they phrase this, they phrase this in terms of, you know, the diminishment or the assault um, on, quote unquote, venture capital. Um, It's actually a term as far as myself and Martin Kenney, who is another person who's interested in this, it it's it originates with the New York Stock Exchange. It originates with Emil Schramm, and it originates with uh, you know kind of folks in the the Dupont, Raskob, Liberty League, anti New Deal. You know, really rabid foes of FDR. So you know, my argument, and again, this is very provisional, is is that you know this is a political concept. And which, you know, attracts fellow ideological fellow travelers. It doesn't bear much relationship to the way in which finance actually happens at mid-century. It doesn't bear much relationship to the way that innovation is funded in the mid-century. The government's heavily involved in that kind of stuff. But it has, you know, it's, it's kind of building ideological power contra labor, contra the left, 
And, you know, as we get into the 60s and 70s, it does begin actually to change the way in which finance is practiced, too. Um, and then when both of those things are in place, you know, a well-developed ideology that a you know, powerful, rich group of people take as common sense now, um, once those things are, are in place, then, you know, this becomes a very uh, powerful political lobby. Um, and there are and continue to be, you know, several very uh, powerful venture capital related uh, industry lobbies who uh, have a great deal of continue to have a great deal of influence over tax policy and, you know, corporate governance and laws related to corporate governance, laws related to the securities industry um, and things of this nature. Um, and they start in NASDAQ, too. So, I mean, there's there are these real like both in the political and, and in the economic realm, not that I would separate them. But, you know, there are some like real major material, you know, tangible consequences to this story that really, in my mind, begins as an ideological, you know, a story. Well, thank you very much. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for tuning in. Please find us on RacingCapitalism.com. That is RacingCapitalism.com to access the show notes describing this and all the other episodes and stay up to date on the Racing Capitalism Project.